When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This episode fits into our Great Sea Fights series, so if you've not come across this yet, do please check it out. We've published numerous episodes on the most spectacular and significant naval battles in history. So far we have covered Pearl Harbour, which includes an amazing 3D animation of a Japanese aircraft carrier, the Shokaku. You can find that on the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel. We've also published on the battles of Trafalgar, Jutland, Tsushima, in which we animated an eyewitness battle plan. That's fantastic. Also on the YouTube channel. Uh, the Falkland Islands, the Battle of Sad Mathieu, a fascinating fight from the Tudor period, the River Plate, the USS Constitution versus HMS Guerriere, and this year there will be many more to look forward to. If you have any suggestions, do please get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or just email. And so to the great sea fight of Guadalcanal. I think this is a fascinating event because of the way that the battle fits into the broader strategy, and in particular because it involves evacuation. This battle therefore fits into a broader history of evacuations achieved under the most intense pressure. There are countless examples, but what immediately springs to mind is George Washington's evacuation of Long Island in the summer of 1776 during the War of American Independence, when the Americans, having lost Long Island to the British, managed to evacuate their entire army to Manhattan without the loss of supplies or a single life. And they did it at night. There is also, of course, the evacuation of Dunkirk of May 1940, which we have covered on a previous episode, so do please check that out. Now, to give you a bit of context about the Battle of Guadalcanal, we are in the winter of 1942. It's a year after the attack on Pearl Harbour, which brought America into the war. Guadalcanal is an island in the Solomons Islands. If you looked on a map, you would find them to the northwest of Australia, about two on a clock face. And Guadalcanal is the largest of those islands. In the months after the attack on Pearl Harbour, the Japanese had been immensely successful. They had driven the Americans out of the Philippines, the British out of British Malaya and the Dutch 
out of the East Indies. The Japanese had then begun to expand into the Western Pacific, occupying many islands in an attempt to build a defensive ring around their conquests and to threaten the lines of communication between the United States and Australia and New Zealand. They reached Guadalcanal in May 1942. This was nothing short of a crisis, and the Americans responded with an invasion of their own. It was their first amphibious landing of the war. This was in August of 1942. Crucially, the Americans captured the newly constructed Japanese airfield, and the next six months were spent in a desperate battle trying to hold it from the Japanese attacks. The battle reached a crisis point in November with a concerted effort from the Japanese to bombard the airfield from the sea and a corresponding American naval effort to drive the Japanese ships away. What followed was one of the most intense and dramatic naval battles of the war with far-reaching strategic consequences and a fascinating evacuation when the Japanese decided to leave the island. As always here on the Mariner's Mirror podcast, we like to bring you the best of the best as our guests. And today I'm delighted to introduce you to the very impressive Geoffrey Cox, a historian who has studied the Pacific War for 40 years. I hope you enjoy listening to Geoffrey as much as I enjoy talking with him and also with his cat. Prepare to be flooded with knowledge and perhaps there'll be a little meowing as well. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. Sam, it's a pleasure. So the Pacific War, you've been interested in this for years, haven't you? What was it that, that first got you interested in it? Well, I think it was when I was really young, like when I was in fourth grade, we had some after school classes we could take uh, if we were considered advanced enough. And I took one on the Second World War. And since then, I've been hooked on it. Uh, especially the Pacific War, that for some reason it just really grabbed me. The European War started grabbing me in uh, probably about junior high and high school, but it was the Pacific War early on since I was a kid, and especially uh, the Guadalcanal campaign and especially the Java Sea campaign, which uh, the Java Sea campaign for me growing up, it was so mysterious. There was not a lot of uh, information available on it, especially if you live in Indianapolis, which isn't exactly... Uh, the library capital or the naval records capital of the world. We had a library and then we had two little bookstores at the mall. And that was pretty much the extent of my um, my ability to research it at that time. We had, didn't have the internet or anything. So uh, over the years, I was able to piece together more and more information about it. And I just kept kept going on with it. And it's, it's just stayed with me the entire time. Um. Jeff, what do we need? What do we need to know in in strategic terms about the Guadalcanal campaign? Can you give us paint us a picture of what was happening? Well, you could say we slapped it together. Uh, we had just stopped the Japanese advance at Coral Sea, and we gave them a bloody nose at Midway. We sank two thirds of the carrier force that attacked Pearl Harbor at Midway, and uh, we were looking for a place where we could start rolling back the Japanese gains in the Pacific. And uh, we were looking at, Admiral King was looking at, especially the Solomon Islands as a place you could do like sort of stepping stones up to go up and then start going to Rabul 
and uh, start working the way back to uh, the Central Pacific, the Philippines, Indonesia. And uh, there was a big battle at the time that was never fully resolved over who would control the Pacific War, uh, whether it was to be a Navy admiral or Douglas MacArthur. And the Army was insistent on Douglas MacArthur running the entire Pacific War. Now, I don't know why you would have an Army general commanding a war that's primarily going to be over water for thousands of miles, but there you have it. And uh, they decided to divide up this specific area because no, neither side would budge, and I don't really believe the Navy should have budged. So MacArthur got the Southwest Pacific, which was Australia, New Guinea, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Nimitz got the rest of it. The Navy got the rest of it. And then you had this, this plan that was called Pestilence that was put together to climb up the Solomon Islands in three phases and start to capture Rabul, which was the big Japanese base in the South Pacific and also the uh, spot on the earth with the most volcanoes per square inch. And uh, it so turned out that the Japanese had a threat, had a strategy of trying to isolate Australia uh, from the U.S. to prevent it from becoming a jumping off point against them. And they put that on hold for Midway, but they started it up again after Midway. And the Army and the Navy in Imperial Japan, they did not like each other. They didn't talk to each other. And so the Army decided to go through New Guinea to do it. And the Navy decided to go down the Solomon Islands to do it and start pushing towards New Caledonia, New Zealand, Fiji, all those other places. And they started building an air base at Lunga Point on a little island called Guadalcanal, which I should point out because a lot of people I'm finding out do not know this, Guadalcanal is not actually a canal. It is named after a town in Spain. And that's one of the fascinating things about the Solomon Islands. You have these islands named after Spanish, Germans, French, British, all that. The Japanese started building this air base on Guadalcanal. And we saw that, and we saw both a threat and an opportunity. The threat was if the Japanese were able to complete this air base and fully man it, fully base it, then they could start cutting that lifeline between Australia and the U.S. Uh, if you, and I think it was uh, uh, one of the writers of the U.S. Navy history, he drew, drew a, a line through uh, from San Francisco to Townsville in Australia, uh, which was one of the primary Allied bases, and it goes almost straight through Guadalcanal, and that's that's a straight line from San Francisco to Australia, or as straight as you can make it on a globe. And so this was a threat. If the Japanese completed this, the war would last much longer as we tried to roll that back. But it was also an opportunity. The Japanese were building an air base, and they weren't guarding it. And we had uh, some of what were known as coast watchers. Uh, the Australians had ceded the Solomon Islands uh, before the Japanese took over with uh, people who would just stay there and report on Japanese troop and air and sea movements. And they became known as coast watchers. And one of them, a guy by the name of Martin Clemens, said, uh, Hey guys, you know, the Japanese are building an air base here. Like, we looked at it and said, Yeah, 
That could be a problem. But hey, we could take it and use it for ourselves. And so they basically slapped together this operation, which be, it was planned as the first part of pestilence, but we weren't quite ready to pull it off yet. We didn't quite have all the ships to do it. We didn't quite have all the training to do it. Uh, but it was either then or it would get much more complicated later on. And so we just slapped it together in something that was called Makey Learning. If you don't know how to do something, just do it. You'll figure out how to get it right later on. And uh, that's how the Guadalcanal campaign started. We, um, we basically threw the entire Pacific fleet together and uh, put it off Guadalcanal. We landed the troops there. Aspects of it, because there's a significant logistical challenge as well as you know being able to provide the air power and the sea power to protect your troops. They had to they had to get troops there in the first place, didn't they? Oh yeah, and they had th there were massive fights about this this operation, and uh, the the generals the admirals rather in charge of it, Admiral Gormley and Admiral Fletcher, Fletcher who commanded the carriers. They didn't think it was going to work. And it's always dangerous to have a commander in charge of an operation who doesn't think it's going to work. And the example I use is Nicias at the uh, Athenian uh, catastrophe on Sicily. Uh, they didn't think it was going to work, so they kept holding things back. Uh, and we had massive fights before the operation. The dress rehearsal for the operation actually was a complete fiasco. And so... General Vandergrift, who was the U.S. Marine commander uh, for uh, the Guadalcanal operation, he was hoping that a bad dress rehearsal meant a good performance. And that's pretty much what happened, although a lot of it was because uh, the Japanese did not guard this adequately. They had only some of what were called special naval landing troops. They were naval infantry. They're often called Marines, but they were really naval infantry. They, uh, they had a reputation for being tough troops, who never surrendered. And these guys did not surrender. They just ran to the jungle when they saw Marines. The only resistance we had on Guadalcanal initially was from some wild pigs. And I got to tell you, those pigs were tough. Those pigs were very <laughs> tough. To, we, we were giving them hell. The special naval landing troops, they just ran to the jungle. The Jap so what we got this, this amazing situation, I think, of um, you, you have this island where the Japanese are building the airstrip, but it, the, the, the island almost acts like a magnet because, as you said, the Japanese haven't got the troops there and the Americans haven't got the troops there, and suddenly everyone descends on Guadalcanal. Well, we had the troops there. We didn't have anything else. We didn't quite have the naval capacity to adequately defend it. The Japanese were overextended in building uh, the air base on Guadalcanal. They needed to build something intermediate like they ultimately ended up doing on New Georgia, which will be covered in my next book on the campaign. Um, but they were overextended. They were way too far from their main bases at Rabul and the Shortlands to defend Guadalcanal. Uh, we put 15,000 Marines on it very quickly, but we hadn't quite perfected the whole combat loading and so we didn't get all the supplies off, and uh, we had thrown the entire Pacific fleet into this, but we couldn't keep them there, and so we had trouble def defending it from a naval standpoint. We didn't have any planes available for that air base for another two weeks. It was about August 25th when we had the first fighters and dive bombers finally get to the air base. The Marines were there by themselves for the first two weeks, and 
uh, as it became clear on the New Georgia campaign, that was very fortunate because the Japanese had not been prepared for this at all, and they didn't think this was a major operation. And so they didn't fight hard for it at first. The Marines who landed on Guadalcanal, the 1st Marine Division, they were trained, but they were green. They had not had any combat experience. They had no jungle experience even. And so for those first two weeks on Guadalcanal, they didn't have a whole lot of combat, so they got used to the jungle. And the jungle is, it can be a frightening place, as I understand it. Um, and it was frightening, certainly, for some of the British in in Malaya, and it was frightening for a lot of the Americans on New Georgia, ultimately, who had to get used to the jungle and combat at the same time. These Marines, they got used to the jungle for two weeks, and then when the Japanese finally did strike, we didn't have to deal with the being worried about the whole jungle thing and all these plants trying to eat you and coconuts falling on your head and killing you and all this rain. We had already internalized that. We just had to deal with combat, which was bad enough. Yeah. Let's let's move on to the um the 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 battle at sea when the Japanese they turn up um with with their with their with their warships and the Americans are there to meet them. Well, saying the Americans were there to meet them is uh, technically, that's true, but that's kind of stretching it a little bit. Uh, within the first 48 hours of the operation, the Japanese uh, Admiral Mikawa, he came down with a force of cruisers. And his job was to destroy our screening, strips, screening ships and then destroy all the transports to strand, us off, to strand the Marines on Guadalcanal without any transport, without any supplies or anything. We should have expected it and we didn't. And that's uh, what, in the first book I wrote on this campaign, I, it, it, it's known as the Battle of Savo Island in the West. And it was a surprise. The Japanese arrival was a surprise. It should not have been, but it was. And I arranged that book in such a way that it should surprise the reader. I felt it was the surprise of that attack and our complete unpreparedness for it was the big story about it. I thought the best way to get that surprise across to the reader was to surprise the reader. And so I gave them no Japanese background for the naval part of it until after the Japanese showed up. So then it was for our ships and our... Actually, the first one who realized the Japanese were there was the air officer for the 1st Marine Division who heard their cruiser float plane. And not even our ships realized it immediately. And uh, then, bam, the Japanese were there. Who's in command? Uh, uh, who's in command? What, 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 where, where, what? <laughs> oh, those are our own ships shooting at us. No, don't, 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 don't shoot at us. Don't shoot at us. We were completely unprepared for it. And that was one of the first, um, examples of peacetime commanders. Commanders who, they're good for a ship during peacetime, not necessarily during wartime. They were able to maneuver the bureaucracy but they didn't know how to handle combat. And there were several examples of that at Guadalcanal, and it took, a, it took over a year to start weeding those people out. But Savo Island was really the first part of it because they, they did not expect combat and they didn't know how to adjust to it. And When it came to the battle in the, the, the 12th to the 15th of November in 42, mm-hmm. you, you have um, a, a fascinating naval battle here where... Um, so much of it is unprepared for, and you've got these two sort of heavyweights blundering into each other at night. It sounds like a, a really, a really extraordinary event. Oh yeah, 
I call it the Friday the 13th action for that reason. It's, it's normally called the first naval battle of Guadalcanal. Uh, but it is so unique among modern naval battles. It is like mm-hmm. Battle of Salamis fought with modern warships. They were mixed like minnows in a bucket, to use the naval, U.S. Navy historian uh, Admiral Morrison's uh, phrase for it. And another guy who fought there, he called it like a bar fight with all the light shot out in the yeah. dark. And that's what it was. You had the Japanese admiral. He had these battleships, and he was going to bombard Henderson Field, the airfield in Guadalcanal, and do all sorts of damage to it. And he was afraid of meeting the U.S. warships there, but he came to believe that we weren't going to be there because he, he got some um, erroneous reports from his scouts on Guadalcanal. We just threw together all the ships we could to face these battleships. We knew battleships were coming, and we didn't know how to stop them because we were stupid and took the torpedoes off of our cruisers. Cruisers normally don't have the guns that can penetrate the armor on battleships, but torpedoes are the great equalizer. Except we believe in guns, not torpedoes. We took the torpedoes off of our cruisers, and so really they were powerless. And then we put someone in charge, an Admiral Callahan, who, and he was a good man, he was a religious man, he should not have been commanding this, and I think he knew it, because he seemed a bit reluctant to do it, uh, and he knew that he was sort of in over his head, but he put his, he put everything into it, and he was a popular admiral, and uh, I don't know if he planned the operation, the battle to turn out like it did, or if it was just an accident, I like to think he planned it the way it turned out, um, but he didn't share his plans with anybody. Uh, but he certainly did not follow the normal playbook for the mm-hmm. U.S. Navy in there. We came in there with a all our ships in a column because they hadn't worked together before, so that was just the simplest thing. And normally you would expect them to, and I'm mirroring you here, um, turn in front of the Japanese and fire their guns at them in like a a crossing of the T. And if the Japanese are in more than one column, it's not a crossing of the T, it's a crossing of the Greek letter pi. But we'll we'll, (laughs) we'll step that aside. I I use that in the next book, actually. Uh, But the gunfire is not going to hurt the battleships. It can't penetrate their hull armor. The only way to penetrate the battleship's hull armor is to get up close and personal. And that's how we ended up. And it, normally you could not do that in this, in this type of battle because you have the enemy destroyers screening their battleships. But the enemy formation had become disjointed in a storm. And so the battleships ultimately cut through the U.S. formation. So we had the destroyers in front of the battleships and the cruisers on the flank of the battleships. And the cruisers got so close, the guns were depressed to fire at the battleship. You didn't, it wasn't ballistic. It wasn't indirect fire. It was direct fire. And it is believed that one of the, the shells from the San Francisco ruptured a ventilation duct on the Japanese flagship uh, Hiai, or as I like to call it, the Hiai, because it just sort of sounds better that way. And that started flooding the steering compartment and shorting out the rudder. And that was ultimately turned out to be the fatal air, the fatal uh, injury, I should say. We had destroyers in front of the battleship, and they were about to be run over. One of them was within 20 feet of being run over. And they 
they said, well, we can't hurt that thing. Our torpedoes, the range is too short. So they just aimed their machine guns at the battleship's bridge and they started raking it and they started smashing windows, smashing range finders, smashing anything they could find on the pagoda bridge tower of the battleship. And it spooked the Japanese Admiral Abe. He was injured and he probably had a concussion because he didn't remember much of the battle afterwards. And that was when he ordered a retreat at that point. So we won the battle by getting up close and personal to the battleship and striking at the weakest part of the Japanese fleet at that point, which was the admiral in charge. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The fact that it was fought at night, I think, is really fascinating. Um, and you, I was reading about the uh, Japanese sailors being trained at night fighting, but the Americans not being trained at night fighting. That seems to have been a big, a big difference between the two. Absolutely. And uh, it, it would manifest itself, itself in numerous ways, especially as the campaign went on. We expected to fight a big battle with big guns on our battleships in the Central Pacific somewhere. So did the Japanese. But they saw their navy as being smaller than ours, and so they planned to whittle our navy down by the time it got to that so-called decisive battle in the Central Pacific. And that's what the Japanese were saving all the ships for, was that decisive battle. And they planned to ambush our fleet in night combat all the way across the Pacific until it was whittled down in size to the point where the Japanese could meet them. And so they developed their entire battle doctrine based on fighting at night. That's how they developed the uh, Type 93 torpedo that's called the Long Lance uh, with an incredible range, incredible speed, and it left almost no wake. You could, you could not see the Japanese when they were launching it. You'd be hit by a torpedo before you even knew the Japanese were there. Uh, they had uh, illumination rounds, star shells, that burned more brightly than ours did, and they lasted longer. They were very, very good. Uh, they killed us at Savoy, and they killed us in a number of battles across the Pacific, uh, especially in the Solomon Islands. They used lookouts 
that they, they tested their eyesight on their lookouts. We had this racist assumption before the war that the Japanese, they had slitty eyes so they can't see. Well, guess what? They outperformed our radar with just their eyesight and oversized polarized binoculars that they could see us at night before our radar could. And it, it was all designed for that. And we could not counter a lot of that because we based everything on big guns during the daytime. We had a lot of catching up to do. And ultimately, by the time you get to the, the end of the Guadalcanal Solomon's campaign, we're basically copying the Japanese strategy piece, piece by piece. Yeah. It's such an interesting uh, the, the story of, of the superior Japanese um, uh, machinery and ships and, and, and weaponry. Um, and then the the Americans scrabbling to get better over time. And, and Guadalcanal does seem to be a, a bit of a turning point there. It's a turning point uh, for different parts of the service uh, at different times. For the uh, Marines, I think it was really was a coming of age for them because they held their own on, on Guadalcanal uh, under the worst circumstances uh, they felt marooned at first. They called themselves the first maroon division. Uh, they had these fanatical troops attacking them, and the Imperial Japanese Army was really inept on the attack. Um, the U.S. Navy, it it stopped the Japanese at Midway. It still had a lot to learn. It started overcoming its limitations during the Guadalcanal campaign, but there were still things it had to learn. It still didn't understand Japanese torpedoes and how they worked. It still didn't understand that big guns did not work under night circumstances. And that was, that was something else the Japanese had was flashless powder. When they fired their guns at night, it left very little of a flash. We had to develop our own flashless powder. And when we did, it gave out so much smoke that we couldn't visually see anything. We had to rely on radar. Uh, so the American ships were illuminating themselves when they were firing at the Japanese? Yeah, and in more ways than one, what the Japanese liked to do was they would wait until all of their guns were ready to fire, and then they'd fire them all at once. So you have a 10-gun heavy cruiser. It will fire all 10 guns at once, and then they'll start to reload. It'll cycle. When the U.S. cruisers fired, we were trained to fire the guns as soon as each one was ready. And so you almost had continuous firing along the hull line of a U.S. ship. That would make it easier to spot at night than a Japanese ship. You have big flash, well, relatively big flash for them, then nothing. You couldn't see it, and your night vision would be uh, distorted by it. You guys had this constant flash here, and you could get a better sight on them. The Japanese did their worst, uh, like Tassafaranga, when they opened fire. The only ship the Japanese lost at Tassafaranga that was really even damaged was the destroyer Takanami, because it stupidly ignored the Admiral's orders and opened fire on the U.S. when he said, just use your torpedoes, they can't see us. And uh, it took us a long time to learn that. And we really only captured it really toward the end of the Solomon's campaign. Yeah. And how do you kind of, the, the, the balance of success and failure in the battle itself. So Callahan dies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also seen as a strategic success for the Americans. I mean, do they, do they, how, how, how do they view it at the time? We stopped the Japanese from bombarding Henderson Field with their battleships. The Japanese had done that in October 
uh, with two sister ships of the Hiai and Kirishima. They, they were the Congo and the Haruna. They stood off the uh, airstrip for about two hours and just blasted it with 14-inch shells. That was the worst bombardment the U.S. Marines had ever suffered. And it, it blasted the airfield, although it turns out it's really hard to stop a dirt airfield from functioning. Uh, it, it destroyed and damaged a number of our aircraft, but the big thing it did was it destroyed the entire supply of aviation fuel. We were struggling just to get aircraft up in the air because we did not have enough fuel. And about 24 hours after that bombardment, the Japanese were landing troops right in, in view of Henderson Field. We could see them on the other side of the bay just landing troops there. And that was sort of insulting. Uh, and that's the way we took it. But the big problem there was it was not just the loss of aviation fuel, but that bombardment destroyed morale. Because all the Marines could do was sit there and take it. This massive bombardment by 14-inch shells. The, the ground was turned into jello. Uh, guys were screaming. They were, like, sticking their fingers in their ears. They had different ways of dealing with it. And these are the t- some of the toughest guys in the world. And they struggled to deal with this massive bombardment. And it took them a little while to get over it, but they were able to, fortunately, because the Japanese could not get their act together and attack the airfield at that time with their their ground troops. Um, so that the, – the battleships stopping them from bombarding Henderson Field was the strategic victory. Uh, it was a tactical defeat, actually. Uh, you might call it a Pyrrhic victory because we lost so much. We lost our two best – our two admirals in the Solomon Islands with uh, Callahan and Norman Scott. Uh, and then we lost a third through office politics in uh, Captain Hoover, who was uh, probably going to be uh, kicked up to admiral pretty soon. And uh, then we had to find all new admirals to learn how to fight at night, to develop a, a night combat doctrine. And they didn't – they had to do it on the job, makey learny. But the loss of those admirals, Callahan and Scott, really hurt us in that time going forward. The Japanese would have their own problems with it uh, starting up in the um, the Middle Solomons campaign when they would start losing admirals at an alarming rate. Yeah. So, well, um, after the battle, the you know the the air airstrip is saved. Guadalcanal stays in American hands. What what happens next? Well, we start taking things maybe a little bit too easy. Uh, we start looking at uh, trying to kick the Japanese uh, off the, the mountain, Mount Austin, where they're looking at the uh, uh, Henderson Field and telling the Japanese uh, pilots what it what it's doing and reporting everything, kind of like our Coast Watchers did, and then occasionally shelling the airfield. Uh, and then we discover that the Japanese, the Imperial Japanese Army, might be terrible on offense if it's facing a competent foe. But it is ingenious on defense, and we really had trouble uh, knocking them off of Mount Austin and getting rid of them, uh, pushing them off of Guadalcanal. And then we had the Battle of Tassaferanga, where we had this brilliant battle plan put together by one admiral. Then he immediately gets reassigned. It's given to another admiral who gets rid of part of it, and then they go and fight the Japanese. They think... They're firing all these big guns at night. Yeah, we're blasting them. We're blasting them. We're just, we're just sinking ships left and right. We weren't hitting anything. And it set the pattern for the battles in the uh, Middle and Upper Solomons. 
the Japanese would come in on a really pathetic uh, supply operation. And I'll get to that in a second. Uh, they came in on destroyers, what we call the Tokyo Express. They'd see our cruisers there. They'd get scared and start to run. Before they would run, they'd fire their torpedoes, and then we would blunder into the torpedoes. And that happened almost every battle in every naval battle in 1943 was some variation on that theme. And it started at Tassaferanga. Uh, and just, just when we thought we had everything figured out, the Japanese pulled the rug out from under us. But the Japanese were in worse trouble than we thought. Their supply operation at this point consisted of uh, putting, taking 55-gallon drums and sterilizing them, hopefully, and then putting food in them and taking them on destroyers to Guadalcanal, pushing them in the water so the army troops ashore could recover them. That is one of the most pitiful military operations I have ever seen. It is desperate. But by that point, the Japanese could not supply their troops on Guadalcanal. They were starving. Uh, they running out of ammunition, running out of food, running out of medicine, running out of everything. And the November convoy to Guadalcanal, it was more evidence that they could not supply their troops there. You need, you need to get those big transport ships with all that cargo capacity to get the, the critical mass to be able to take and defend the island. And they could not do that. And so we just kept seeing things in terms of intelligence like, okay, the Japanese are running more convoys in, more convoys in. They're, they're supplying the troops. They're putting more troops in there. It took one person to ask at the very end of it, could the Japanese be evacuating? Ah, <laughs> huh. you know, they might be doing that. Ah, what a concept. And that's exactly what they were doing. They covered it up very well. That was a brilliantly executed operation. We did not stop it. We had no idea until it was done. that The Japanese had withdrawn about 14,000 troops from Guadalcanal. Wow. Amazing. Now, now they were starving. They were emaciated. It was going to take some time to put them uh, back into fighting shape, if at all. But that was two divisions worth of troops that the Japanese pulled off of Guadalcanal right under our noses. And they showed a propensity for being able to do that right up the Solomon Islands. Yeah. Now, Where did they take them? Where did they, did they, were they landed on, an, on another island to defend that? They were taken to the Shortlands, which is rather confusing because Shortland is the name of an island off of Bougainville and its accompanying island group. So it's a little complicated. Um, <clears throat> there were a group of islands just to the southeast of Bougainville called the Shortlands. They had an anchorage there. They had a big base on uh, Bougainville at Buin, which we call it Kahili. They built a base, an air base on an island that took up the entire island called Balale. And the base was built by about 500 British POWs from Singapore. And none of them returned from the war. So they, uh, we believe that they were all um, executed uh, sometime between March and Jan or June of 1943. Although some of them were killed in airstrikes intentionally by the Japanese. Uh, so the Japanese had this network of bases there. And they, that's where they brought the troops back. And some of them were in a daze. Uh, some of them, the description, and it's kind of a disgusting description, is... But it's really the most telling is that they had so little body fat on them that their anuses were exposed. Their, their flank fat on their backsides had pulled apart. 
That's how little body fat they had left on them. And some of them could not eat because they were so emaciated, they were so sick. And those people, they may not have even returned to combat. And I, a part of them, they were just sent out into the, the forest and said, yeah, you're done. Really nice people, the Imperial Japanese Army was. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating story. And I, I think it's so interesting as well, the contrast with what happened at Midway, the difference between the Battle of Guadalcanal and also later Gulf as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, for naval historians, it's... Uh, I think the variety of the combat. It was interesting. You were saying that after Guadalcanal, you had the, um, the you know uh, torpedoes became so important, but less so in the battle itself. Um, do you think that having such a variety in naval battles makes this Pacific campaign particularly interesting, or does it make it particularly difficult to get your head around? To, to me, it makes it more interesting. It made it more interesting for me as a kid. In, in Guadalcanal, it was what I called it was. Um, a lot of people have called it Paradise Lost. It looks like Paradise, but it's more like uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost because it is it is it is so deceptive. It's beautiful, but that beauty will kill you, and that deception extended to the Guadalcanal campaign. You would think you lost a battle when it turns out you won it. Savo Island being a case in point. We got our butts kicked at Savo Island, part, partly because we accidentally sank an Australian ship. But it turned into a strategic victory because the Japanese did not sink the transports like they were supposed to do. We thought we won the Battle of Cape Esperance when we turned back uh, Admiral uh, Godo's uh, cruisers. But we actually lost it because the Japanese managed to land a whole bunch of troops and a whole bunch of guns there. And this would happen time and time again. A victory would turn into a defeat, vice versa. You would think you had turned the corner in the campaign. 24 hours later, the enemy had turned the corner in the campaign and you were about to lose. And it was like that on Guadalcanal, back and forth, back and forth. When you start moving up the Solomons, you start getting more, the Americans start getting more confident. They start thinking, okay, we've turned the corner now and certain setbacks don't have us uh, going for the gas pipe or anything. We understand there are going to be setbacks and we deal with it. But it's still not a sure thing. And we have, we have a lot of problems dealing with the Japanese on New Georgia, both on land and at sea. And uh, so this campaign, even after Guadalcanal, it was no sure thing. The Guadalcanal really gave us confidence. We were told that the Japanese were supermen after Pearl Harbor, after the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, after Clark Field, uh, after the Java Sea campaign, after what the Japanese did in the Indian Ocean and sinking the Hermes and the Dorsetshire and the Cornwall. and it turns out they're just normal, everyday people, and they they can be shot and killed, just like any other enemy can. And they were no longer supermen. And once we accepted that, uh, we our confidence just really got better and better from that point on. Well, it's, it's an extraordinary story. And uh, all of you listeners out there, I'd encourage you very much to read Jeff's book, Blazing Star, Setting Sun, The Guadalcanal, Solomon's Campaign, November 1942 to March 1943. I've hugely enjoyed it. It is really fantastic. Jeff, thank you so much for talking to us today. And I'll be sure to come back to you to find out what happens in the rest of the war. 
Well, uh, th- thank you very much for having me, and uh, we'll cover the rest of the campaign in the next book in the trilogy. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Thank you all very much for listening. Now, do please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really makes all the difference. And if you do so, I will read it out. I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. Please also check out the Mariner's Mirror's truly fantastic YouTube channel with some spectacular new videos. Our latest being an animated 3D model of the Titanic created from the ship's original plans. It really is quite extraordinary. Best of all, however, please, please join the Society for Nautical Research. Your modest membership fee will go towards supporting this podcast, publishing the Mariner's Mirror quarterly journal and towards preserving our maritime past. In return, you get to to become a member of an extremely friendly international society. We have regular talks both online and at venues and you also receive the Mariner's Mirror Journal four times a year and you can come to our annual dinner on the gun decks of HMS Victory. You try and beat that. Fantastic. You can find out about everything we do and you can join at snr.org.uk.